Hello, and welcome to The Biggest Questions Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Stackert. And I'm Kevin Hector. And it's our pleasure to have today with us our guest, Wilhelmine Otten, who is Professor of Theology and the History of Christianity at the University of Chicago Divinity School. She is also the director of the Martin Marty Center for the Public Understanding of Religion. And it's a special opportunity for us to have her with us because the Martin Marty Center is actually the sponsor for our podcast. And so to have the director with us is a special treat. Wilhelmine is a medievalist. So her works is uh, focused not only, but especially on uh, medieval Christianity. And we wanna talk to her today about a subject uh, that is related, although not only, to medieval studies. And that is her new book that's just appeared here in 2020 called Thinking Nature and the Nature of Thinking from Ari Ujina to Emerson. It's published by Stanford University Press. Uh, so we're very excited for this conversation. Welcome, Wilhelmine. Thank you, thank you. I'm excited too. An honor, an honor. <laughs> oh, well, it's really great to have you. Uh, maybe we could start by asking you to tell us just a little bit about the book. Yes. So the book um, comes out of my long-standing interest in, in a Carolingian thinker, so an early medieval Christian thinker, John Scotus Eriugena, who was Irish, although the name Scotus would make you think otherwise, but he was Irish. And I have done a lot of earlier work on him, but the problem is he was condemned in the 13th century, meaning that he was really not widely received after that period. And um, whatever work I seem to be doing, since he was not a major figure like Origen, on whom he models himself a little bit, it would always be kind of work that would be read by a niche group of scholars, right? And basically, I felt for a long time that Eriugena had a lot to say, but I couldn't make him say it. Uh, so I decided uh, to go for a rather different approach for me, namely to not have you know, long quotations from the Latin or go into details of the text, but, but start a wider conversation. And I ended up doing so uh, through a more or less chance encounter by juxtaposing him with um, Ralph Waldo Emerson. I heard a talk a long time ago at the AR one time on Emerson, and it was in a Platonism session, which are the kinds of sessions I frequent. And it just sounded to me just like Eriugena. So that got me into thinking uh, about Emerson. And it seemed their affinity only grew stronger the more Emerson I read. And so I juxtaposed them. And because I see both as um, thinking nature, by which I mean encountering nature in thought, as opposed to thinking about nature, meaning instrumentalizing nature. I see them doing that both, but uh, I also see them having an, a strong sense of self underlying that nature and basically guaranteeing that it's not completely pantheistic uh, because both of them has been, have been seen as pantheists. And then I surround both thinkers with um, comparable thinkers. For Eriugena, it's Augustine as kind of the ancient author of selfhood and Maximus, the confessor, as a Byzantine author on cosmology. And for Emerson, I do it with a Schleiermacher as a kind of a thinker on 
intuition of the infinite through the universe and um, William James as a kind of psychological thinker about the religious self. So I, I kind of carry that uh, juxtaposition to the next level saying by having them uh, surrounded by familiar uh, authors. And I hope through that measure that I can both shed more clarity on the axis of Eugen and Emerson in terms of their thought about nature, but also since both are kind of exceptional thinkers, make people more familiar with them and insert them in a larger tradition rather than seeing them as these outliers, uh, which is how they're normally perceived. So that's really interesting. I'm especially taken by the idea that you read Eugenia and you just have this sense that he should be getting a wider readership. There's something there that repays attention. I'd be interested to hear you say a little bit more about what it is that a wider readership would find there. And, and maybe in that you could comment on, you had this, I wrote this down, you had this really tantalizing phrase. What we find in Eugenia is encountering nature in thought as opposed to thinking instrumentally about nature. I'd, I'd love to hear more about what it means to encounter nature in thought and if that opens up for us a sense of what it is that uh, this wider audience could find in Eriugena. Yes, so Eriugena's work is called Perifusion on Natures was translated on the division of nature but that's just a part of it. It's really on natures. And natura, nature, is his overarching term. And um, which he then actually right away at the beginning divides, so division is an important concept for him, into being and non-being. He then sort of goes on to specify what is part of being and non-being. And it turns out that God is in the domain of non-being because he transcends in the Dionysian technique of negative theology being but God is part of nature. So it's extremely unusual to have God as part of nature and yet not to be allowed to kind of delimit um, God's range of freedom in a way because he's non-being. So that is a, a, just a really unusual uh, move and it has made for the fact that Eugenia would be often seen as a pantheist really. But mm -hmm. I don't think in a technical way he is a pantheist and it's precisely that kind of uh, difficulty to uh, define his work, what it really is. Is it a cosmology? Is it a theology? Uh, is it an exegetical work since half of it is a commentary on Genesis that I felt ultimately after having read on his, um, uh, written on his anthropology before, I should just tackle the topic of nature because that is what he wants to write about and that is what he is writing about. And so that led me to, to this idea of, of, of encountering nature in thought since nature is such a, a topic that is front and center in it. Everything is about nature. And it's one giant uh, work that begins from creation and ends to return and follows the meandering ways of nature. And I, I shouldn't go too much into the weeds, but there is a sense that in the process, nature kind of uh, develops a kind of agency that nature takes you with it in its folds and creases, uh, so to speak, of its garment and ultimately leads you home. 
and, and it's just really an amazing work, intellectually stimulating work, the way he does that. So to me, it really belongs with Origen or with Dante, but in a very different register. And I think that register is, is something that I felt there in Emerson as well. Can you say a little bit more about what it means for Eriugena for God to be uh, part of nature and maybe how that uh, connects with, uh, with Emerson? Yes, well, that's, that's really a, a, a good point and a difficult point. So he divides nature into things that are and things that are not. And the only thing really that is not is God. But it's amazing, especially if you put him in his Carolingian uh, sphere, I'm just trying to teach the Carolingians, they were a, a culture with enormous confidence, almost overconfidence, I would say, and a paucity of resources. Eriugena happened to know Greek, but people didn't know Greek at the time. And they didn't even have all the Latin sources available that were available in earlier times. But there's an enormous confidence to, to tackle intellectual projects, say, after the fall of the Roman Empire and you had sort of tribal migration for a while, there is a renewed sort of stability. And Eriugena um, falls into that period. And so um, he really is, is daring in wanting to take on a study of everything, so to speak, which includes God, even although he pays homage to God by saying that God cannot be understood. But you would think that in a primitive period, you would see God very far away as a kind of a numinous sort of force. But this is the other, this is almost the other way around. It's an attempt to make God familiar and make God part of, of the story. Maybe an interesting uh, case is that uh, to, to illustrate of, of making God familiar is Eriugena does kind of what I've called exegetical voiceovers. In, in his commentary on Genesis, that he says, well, you know, Adam says this, but actually he means this, right? And when Adam and is, is uh, cur you know, when Eve is created, uh, because, you know, he needs to have, Adam needs to have a help meet, uh, Eriugena foresees that things go wrong, of course, and he takes this out of Gregory of Nyssa and other authors, but he uses the term in a voiceover, you know, that God in his irony, you know, wanted to create a woman for Adam because he knew, of course, he was going to go astray and he just thought, let's help him, right? So this sense of, I know what's going on in a period that doesn't know anything, so to speak, is just really remarkable. So it's a remarkable intellectual work and, and literary work, I would say also. But now to Emerson, so Emerson, has also this sense of nature that is really larger than we are, that we are a part of, and God is a part of too. Uh, so Emerson's first book, Nature, he says someone, you know, he, in the beginning he sets out the state, he sets the state and it's this farmer belongs to Jones and this farm, this farm belongs to Jones, this farm belongs to another family. And he says, but nobody owns the landscape, which is to say, that all of us own it, right? That this is a part of all of us and we are a part of it. And then going on in nature, he has this famous image that he says, and that I comment on that, uh, I am a transparent eyeball, 
you know, everything, the winds, everything blows through me. And I'm part and parcel of God. So I'm part and parcel of God. But the, the, the trickiness of Emerson, just like in Eriugena, is that he's more masterful than he appears because I'm a transparent eyeball. I'm still the eye that frames what I see. See what I mean? So it's really more kind of a dialogue between God and self through nature than that it's either complete pantheism or as other people say, complete idealism. Mm. And I've wanted to really focus on that nature as dialogue between God and selfhood. So that raises a question about uh, something you raised earlier, namely that Eryugena is condemned, right? And so I'd be interested to hear you say a little bit more about that, especially if it's your judgment as a historian that he was well understood and condemned for what he had to say, or if he was misunderstood and therefore condemned on the basis of a misunderstanding. You can also speak to whether he ought to have been condemned, but I suspect yeah. I know the answer yeah. to that. <laughs> well, condemnations, you know, happen and don't happen. <laughs> Say someone like Eckhart was condemned and we read him all over the place. Right. In his case, you know, it was a little earlier, all his works had to be sent to Rome to be burned. And so a lot was really burned. I, uh, opinions have varied uh, as to why he was condemned. Uh, he was, it was seen earlier on that he was connected with a heretic, Amalric of Bean, who had grandiose eschatological visions where gender would be erased and so on. And, but more recently, people seem to think that the condemnation was related to the kind of anti-intellectual climate anti-Aristotelian climate in the early 13th century that led to other condemnations. So at least you can say, different from Eckhart, this was four, century after, four centuries after he lived, right? So he could do little about that. So I'm actually kind of neutral about um, a, a mentor of mine who passed away last year, Edouard Journaud, used to say he, he should you know, he was wrongly condemned or it happened after his death, but he should be condemned for other reasons, he thought. So I'm actually completely neutral on that. But what I signal is that it is an important ingredient of, say, what nature is in the Middle Ages that now has been taken out of the history of reception, right? So I think as a result, we have kind of a skewed history of reception. And I think with Eryugena plucked into the tradition, we would have had a different history of reception. And I kind of want to look like what that would have been like uh, if history had gone a different course. So what's an example of a way that you might think it would have been different if Eryugena had been part of that reception? What directions might we have gone? I do think that um, uh, something that, that has bugged me a little bit, and so that I am this, this sort of sense of um, you're either a pantheist or there is a sense of uh, humans as a, a dominion of, that Adam has over the earth, so a kind of a stewardship model of, of creation. And those to me are two extremes that I, I just feel are both not particularly helpful and there's a, a, a big vacuum in the middle. And I think someone like Eryugena fills that vacuum. So there are many more ways to construe nature, to think about nature, to think about the relationship between uh, humanity and, and the divine. 
And, and maybe if I can add something at this point, what I see maybe as a payoff. So uh, in terms of ecumenical or interreligious discussion, I am somewhat concerned that there won't be uh, the possibilities of really making uh, progress in terms of having a discussion about the literary elements of one's faith. Now, Eryushina uses um, uh, an image that he takes from Maximus the Confessor, that nature and scripture are the two vestments of Christ. Hmm. And I think if you see nature as a vestment of Christ, I think you can have an ecumenical and an interreligious discussion that, that goes through nature rather than through scripture, right? And hmm. if you add then that we're in a period of ecological crisis, I think there might be much to say for focusing collectively as religions on nature and how to preserve the earth and everything that sort of flows from that. So I think to kind of put nature on the agenda after it's been very difficult since Bart really uh, despised natural uh, religion, natural theology, it's, it's, it might be time to really reevaluate nature and then Eryugina would be a logical place to go. Hmm. So I'm really struck by the way that you're talking about a sort of, of salvage project, you know, mm -hmm. where you're bringing back uh, something that uh, has been sublimated, uh, that people haven't paid attention to as much, because that's part of what I do in my work with biblical texts. And some of the same texts, I take it that, that Eryugina is so interested in. Uh, these are texts that mm -hmm. I pay a lot of attention to as well, especially in Genesis. And part of what I'm doing there is reconstructing an earlier cosmological text uh, that has been understood in very different ways because of its reception history. And part of that reception has been to really sublimate that earlier composition. Yeah. And so I'm interested to hear you talk a little bit more about the way that Eryugina reads Genesis, because you mm -hmm. said that a big part of the work that he does is a kind of commentary on Genesis. Yeah, it is. Well, he actually has two layers of reading it. He begins by reading it fairly literally, and he, he follows Basil of Caesarea. Uh, he follows a lot of, of other commentaries. And then book four, especially uh, when he talks about creation of humanity and the fall of humanity, he really uh, allegorizes it. And allegory, of course, gives him a way to bring nature home, as I said earlier, because, of course, if you see nature as, as really uh, the dialogue between God and selfhood and the self that ultimately wants to be reunited with God, then Genesis is a hard nut to crack because Adam is ejected from paradise, so he's expelled, right? So he performs various moves that are really uh, daring in, in many ways. I'll, I'll just mention two that come to mind. One is when Adam sins and, and he's uh, expelled from paradise. He's, it says in, in the Latin that he quotes the Vulgate that... Um, that he may not stretch out his hand to eat from the tree of, of life, right? Uh, and Eryugina, through a grammatical move, interprets that as a, in a different way, saying that maybe one day he will stretch out his hand and eat from the tree of life. So from a kind of a, a story of protology, he makes it a story of eschatology. That can still happen, right? And at the end of book five, towards the end of his uh, work, 
he talks about resurrection also in really interesting ways in that he sees it he's talking then also about nature and grace as a cooperation of nature and grace because he has the example of of beetles or say the scarab right that is deep in the earth and that comes up again right so he sees that nature also has its resurrections and he doesn't want to oppose nature and grace there but sees resurrection as a great collaborative project of nature and grace so he clearly um, allegorizes things in in such a way that that it allows him to bring nature home but it's always pretty close to the text and 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 also adjudicating between different fathers so augustine or gregory of nyssa and so on to make sure that uh, that he gets to his position So that leads me to uh, a question that I've wondered about. It, it sounds like Eugenia is reading texts and has different standards for what it means to get them right. But you yourself, in doing theology, you approach theology with your historical training. I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about how those two things relate, historical work and we, we sometimes call it constructive work. Um, how they fit in your work, and if you would be so bold as to venture ideas about within the field of theology more generally, what kind of uh, responsibility theologians have to history. I'm inviting you to dictate the terms of the field. <laughs> well, um, to start with Eryujna, he has, I'm not sure he has a method. Well, he has a, a method uh, of adjudicated authorities, but he also is always eager for synthesis. So Augustine in the West, Dionysius in the East will never contradict each other in Eryujna. Someone has really sorted that out. And it's amazing because sometimes they do, but then he finds a way that they don't, right? So synthesis um, makes it maybe a, a very constructive project. As for my own approach, I see myself really mostly as a historian of Christianity, I think, but I've sort of somewhat surprised myself. And I think some of my readers to, you know, one of my readers said that I was, a religious writer in my own right or something. So I was sort of surprised um, um, at that, but I'm, I'm willing to take up the challenge. Basically what I see is that uh, as a historian, I want to have someone like Eryugena, who I feel has been overlooked, bring something to the table that wasn't on the table before. So I'm not interested in, you know, taking a modern, uh, lens or a modern theorist and then apply it to Eryugena and see what relevance we can pour out of this. I really want to, to go to an author and, and find something and bring that to the table. I do think this is somewhat unusual because I've thought about him for so long and, and that I did that. I'm not sure I would easily replicate that with another, with another author. But it is, it is a good question how I see the constructive project. I do think it is important that you deal with uh, history responsibly. And as, as some of you may know, I teach these seminars on theological criticism. And one of my takes is that you have to be responsible in using historical sources. And not only, I should say, historical sources, other sources too, but you can just say, 
I'm Protestant, so I'll go from Augustine to Luther as if there was no in-between, right? You can just say I'm Catholic, so I'm going to Thomas, because for some of your project, they might be exactly the wrong sources to go to, right? So I'm interested in fine-tuning ways to link up projects with certain, um, with certain historical data, right? I remember at Boston College, um, I, before I even used the term theological criticism, I had a doctoral student who was working in ethics, so she was not really working with me, I was not her advisor, on in vitro fertilization. But she became very interested because of a class I did uh, in the medieval beguines, and she used some of those texts for her work on in vitro fertilization. So the way you look on a female body and sexuality and suffering, all those things came together for her and she was able to channel into that work. And I just thought that was great. I said to her, I would have never come up with it, but it makes a great deal of sense. So I want to open up history for people to maximize in a way it, it, its capacity its offerings so that people can can make use of what is there in the tradition. Can I follow up on that and, and ask Kevin to respond as another theologian? So theologian to theologian here, someone who works more constructively, talking to someone who works more historically. How does that sound to you, Kevin? It sounds right to me. In the, so I when I use historical materials, I think that to use them is to undertake responsibility to try to get them right at the very least and to get them right on their own terms. And that means reading them in light of their own context as far as possible. The cardinal sin of using historical materials, I think, is uh, ventriloquizing them, yes. just going to them in order to get them to say what I want or to pick and choose in order to get things to say what they want. Um, if the historical materials can't push back, then I'm doing something wrong. Now, I think there are levels of historical responsibility and contextual reading. At the very least, I think I care about reading texts in their historical context, reading arguments within those texts, within the flow of the text itself, and not just in light of how it sounds to my modern ears. But going beyond that, reading them within the corpus of an author, trying to understand that author within the scope of an intellectual tradition, but also contemporaneous constraints. Yeah, so I, I don't always live up to those standards, but those are the standards that I think, as soon as you start using historical materials, it seems to me, those are the responsibilities you undertake. And if you don't live up to them, then you're blameworthy for it. Yeah. If I can follow up on one point here, if that if that's Please, okay. yes. Um, so the term, you know, a term that I, I'm not always happy with in theology is contextual theology, mm -hmm. because it seems to me that I know exactly what is meant by it, but it seems to me a way sometimes to push things into the margin. It's, it's context rather than text, right? And what I feel I've wanted to do with Eryugena is make it text, make it substance. So oddly, 
I, I'm very attached to this being a Carolingian artifact, say, but, um, but I don't feel that, that everybody has to be a Carolingian expert. And that's why I read him, Eugenia, in this book through Emerson, so that we can get rid of all those details that are ultimately in the way or would force you to be a specialist of the kind that you don't want to be, right? So I, I'm not always happy with the term contextual because to me it, it doesn't allow you to foreground the substance of what somebody's saying, uh, of what, uh, which is exactly what you would like to foreground. Mm. Can I come back, uh, Wilhelmine? You brought up uh, uh, sort of condemnation of natural theology in the 20th century by people like Bart. Can I come back to that? And you know, you you offered a really, I think, compelling example of the usefulness of a natural theology in. Uh, the vein of Eriugena in the example of uh, interreligious dialogue or ecumenism. When you read someone like Barth in his condemnation uh, of natural theology, is it in relation to things like ecumenism and interreligious dialogue that you think, you know, ah, this is where we need to push back? Or are there other ways within, say, the Christian tradition where you see real payoff for a natural theology that someone like Barth or others didn't? Well, I, I, as Kevin knows, I grew up a Barthian, so, so I mean, I, I, I grew up very scriptural, I can tell you. So nature was a, was a discovery for me, in a way. I, I think it is more complex. I mean, I do see a payoff. I, I had plans. I thought maybe I should write about that. I don't think I really will. I mean, I don't see myself write a systematic the theology. That's, that's really Kevin's uh, job because I see myself as more doing the kind of historical, uh, uh, ex well, excavation is not a good, good word, but, but getting, using the historical to get to substantive points, right? And so what I'm now more interested in is doing something on natural law, and that's kind of the reverse of Barth. So Barth hated natural the uh, theology. In the Catholic tradition, and the tradition that leads to the say the Supreme Court nominations, it's very often about natural law. And I think that goes back to Aquinas and, and a sense of a purism of, of a nature that just exists out there. And my hunch is at the moment that that is actually a far more contrived sense of nature. And I would actually be interested in in, in teasing out what exactly is being contrived, because I, I somehow think it's not so natural, right? So um, I think I would pursue that path more than doing the constructive theology, which I think can be done. I really mm -hmm. think it can be done. But I don't think it, given my own skills, say, uh, somebody trained in historical and, and, and medieval materials to really uh, do that. So I really think I want to stick with uh, with some medieval text and sort of see where, if there are some fallacies in that logic, and if so, what they are. And then I would try to unpack it further, maybe uh, along the lines of what I did with Eugenia. Um, how should we conceive it differently if if these fallacies give us give us the wrong the wrong ideas? Mm -hmm. So this is a hunch at this point, but I really have a sense, I thought about it a lot in the spring after the book just came out that I thought I would really like to go in that direction, I think. Hmm. 
So I want to hear a little bit more about these hunches. Uh, I'm interested, is there, there's this resolutely anti-dualistic conception of nature that you're talking about mm -hmm. and a sense of nature having an agency and leading us home, which is a really lovely image. I'm wondering if you can get to natural law on that basis and if that reconfigures mm -hmm. what natural law looks like. I mean, in some ways I would be interested in hearing you say what Eugenia would say to someone like John Finnis or Germaine Grise, mm -hmm. uh, any of the people who are appropriating natural law out of the Catholic tradition that you've told us excised Eugenia's reception of these traditions of nature. Yeah, it is it 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 is difficult, and I, I it is not more than a hunch, so I can't really be very specific. But one thing that is important to me um, goes back to exegesis. So the way I see the development of early Christian and or and then medieval theology and thought is as as a way of exegeting, right? And as as you get the beginning of scholasticism, you got so much that certain authorities had to say about creation or about the creator or about the sun and incarnation, that those became the low time, right? What you see in the 12th century, uh, about which I wrote an earlier book, is the allegorization of scripture uh, and the proliferation of images became so complex that you had to be a virtual you know, intellectual acrobat to keep all the images in play and to keep them connected and, and legibly connected for any audience. So I think that actually, that, that whole system collapsed. And to me then, the rise of scholasticism cannot only be explained by the influx of Aristotelianism and new Greek philosophy through you know, the Arabic world, but also was necessitated because the, the earlier way of, of continuing to have an organic way in which knowledge comes out of scripture uh, no longer functioned uh, in the way it had before. But I do think that what you get with scholasticism is a sort of a makeover of theology that is indeed very Aristotelian and that um, has a much harder time to connect to scripture. There's not an organic way to connect to scripture. There, there are proof texts, or you can make it work with scripture, but it is a kind of a different project. And I guess I would be interested in trying to see how natural law would look different if we did read it in that older way, right? With that organic connection with, with scripture. I don't, I mean, I've, I've, I used to think that, that Aristotelianism was the problem. I don't think that anymore because I do think the 12th century did come to an end. I mean, that way of, of reading scripture did come to an end. But the, the way in which, that's how I've put it elsewhere sometimes, the way in which the poetic and the philosophical really were separated uh, from the scholastic era onward, is something that I deplore. So if there's ways in which you can have a view of nature, even of natural law, that would allow for poetic imagery, that would be good. Mm. So there, yeah, so it, it's again an attempt to bridge, but I, I would want to have a less mathematically defined nature that 
because of that would be more open to real senses of nature. That would be where I'm at the moment. That's really fascinating. The bit about the reconnecting concepts of nature to scripture and exegesis and a rich world yeah. of exegesis is really interesting, uh, as well as the, the point about what that then looks like when nature is so reconnected. That's really good. Well, I mean, we'd like to ask all of our guests the same question. And of course, we get different answers every time. Uh, but in relation to this project on um, thinking nature and the nature of thinking, what was your biggest question? My biggest question, could I ever finish it? <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, I, it, it was at one, st uh, at one stage I thought, you know, I should just not do this because it is a bit of a crazy project. And I should say it is the kind of crazy project that you can do in the diff school. Because I think in my um, previous positions in Europe, you know, as a professor of church history, this is really odd. But, but it was, it was uh, I, I had a sense I was right, but I honestly thought, should I really do this at one stage? Isn't it taking me into fields that I also really don't know, like William James, who I became fascinated with? But I'm, it, I'm just really pleased I did. I mean, I'm not sure that authors should say that, but I'm really <laughs> pleased I did. And I like the book from cover to content. I really do. Uh, so um, yeah, the, back, the biggest question was, is it doable to really mm -hmm. straddle cultures, pre-modern and modern, and to remain credible? Uh, that, that was my biggest question. Hmm. That's great. That is great. Uh, we also like to give each of our guests the opportunity to make a public service announcement. Uh, so our, our sense is that every scholar, they work so hard in their discipline and there's all these ways that the things they study are just misunderstood and the kind of work they do is just misunderstood. So you get to make a public service announcement. What are some things you wish people understood about the sort of work you do, the sorts of materials you work on that people just generally don't get, get wrong? Okay, um, I, I'm not so sure that I really feel that I'm misunderstood. Um, I may not be listened to, that's something else, but <laughs> I can live with right. that too. I'm honestly not, I don't think that I'm really deeply misunderstood. But, uh, so I'm not sure I have a direct answer. Uh, I was thinking something else in terms of public service announcement. I am happy to say that the AAR will have a panel on my book. Wonderful. Oh, wonderful. Um, mysticism and ecology session, entirely devoted to my book. So I'm really pleased. And maybe that's even an excess of understanding. I had not <laughs> uh, previously at visits, but, um, uh, maybe maybe the, the, the difficulty uh, is that, uh, you know, the Middle Ages is very often seen as the period from the 12th to the 15th century. I work in the Shadowlands, you know. Uh, it's a huge period between Augustine and Aquinas. It's, it's almost as long as from Aquinas till now, but it's a period routinely, even among medievalists, overlooked. And to try and make that period a little more visible is really what I try to do. And to tell people that the Middle Ages, you know, start before 1200 and, and there's a world to gain if you read up on materials in that earlier period, uh, that would just be really, really great. Mm. 
but other than that, I, I'm not misunderstood, I think. No, that's a really good public service announcement, though. Yeah, absolutely. There's this vast stretch of important work that's done that just gets ignored. Yeah. And, and maybe if I can add something. So a lot of people I, I know, just from experience, want to work on, on things that are hot. You know, you work on hot topics and, and, and there's a community there of scholars. But I think it's also wise to find materials that not everybody's working on, right? Because, mm. because you are in some ways a pioneer, you can then make connection and, uh, connections and you expand the field and, um, and you're not competing with a hundred other people doing the same things. So I think in terms of how we undertake our project, we very often flock to the same things. And I think we should keep in mind that there are also, uh, and I respect that actually, because you build up on energy, or you build off of energy that is generated when people work together on a field. But you should also keep in mind that there may be other things that you might have a talent for or an interest in that would be worth exploring. So be wise in choosing what you want to pursue as the object of your studies. That's great. Well, we've come to the end of our time, and I just have to say thank you so much for joining us on the Biggest Questions podcast. Uh, the book is Thinking Nature and the Nature of Thinking, and our guest has been Professor Wilhelmine Otten. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was really fun. Thank you, Jeff and Kevin.